Are you on the RCR mailing list? Never miss a beat of the news and hard-hitting stories you've come to know and love. Stay in the loop. Visit realitycheck.radio forward slash email. A week or so ago, we spoke to Simon Elmer. Born and living in London in 2002, he received his PhD in the History and Theory of Art from University College London. He has taught at the Universities of London, Manchester, Reading and Michigan. In 2015, he co-founded Architects for Social Housing, for which he is Head of Research. And back on the 20th of November, we were talking with Simon about his new book, The Great Reset, Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capitalism. And I want to thank Simon because I now know, after hearing that term so many times, exactly what stakeholder (laughs) capitalism is. Simon, welcome back to RCR. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me back, Paul. Good to talk with you again. And I'm I'm glad the, uh, the those terms are filtering down now into the public consciousness because we need to we need to understand what they what they mean and what they mean for us. Yeah. It's like when you've been liking a song for ages and you actually check the <laughs> lyrics and realize you've been singing the, you know the, the wrong words for about the last forty years. Oh, that's what that means. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So here though today um, we want to chat about um, Gaza, um, the talk of genocide and war crimes. The impact, the impact this conflict is having on um, the resistance slash freedom communities around the world, I guess, in like countries. So um, we've had a bit of time now to observe this thing in the way it sort of the way it started, though even that's a bit blurry, actually, and the way it sort of kind of rolled out. Now we're at a point where the stats are shocking. You know, um, we know about the 1,200 Israelis the kidnapped um, uh, people as well, uh, well over 200, some have been released. But on Gaza, I mean, this is really hard to take, actually. 15,523 killed, 6,600 children, 4,300 women, um, over 41,000 injured, missing nearly 7,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So let's let's start. Um, where, where do you want to start on this? Before we get to how the freedom communities are coping with it. Let's start with those figures because, I mean, one of the reactions to this is to doubt the validity of these figures and what their provenance is and so on and so forth. But a lot of these figures are corroborated by the UN, which, you know, we've got to believe someone. I certainly don't believe the UN on everything. But but quibbling between whether 8,000 Palestinian children have been killed over the last two months or whether it's only 6,000 seems to me to be the argument of people who are looking, who are apologists for, for what is clearly going on there. Yeah. Um, a lot of people who know more about the law than I do have established that there are multiple crimes which have been committed by the Israel Defense Forces in this attack on Gaza. Um, think crimes of collective punishment, crimes of terrorism, and above all, crimes of genocide, because it's quite clear that under various conventions, the Geneva Convention, the Hague Convention, the conventions on the on genocide itself, that's what's being committed there. I think what's <clears throat> I think what's new about this is because of the ubiquity of smartphones, I mean, you know, there are there are there are people almost untouched by Western civilization at the head of the the Amazon Valley who who've still got smartphones. Everyone's got smartphones. And I don't think we've ever seen what genocide really looks like up close as much as this, not in Rwanda, not in Bosnia, not in uh, Cambodia or so on. And it's had a very big, strong impact on people in the world. Um, And all that Zionists who are trying to justify this can do is kind of deny it. But we're seeing what it means when 4,000 or 6,000 or 8,000 children are killed and the kind of the horror of that. Um, 
I think one of the things that people come back at me saying, you know, are you sort of on the side of Hamas or, you know, do you not see the threat to blah, blah, blah? You know, let me say straight out, it seems necessary to say it. I'm definitely not on the side of Hamas. I'm not mm. an Islamic fundamentalist. Um, I'm not apologizing for um, the attack on uh, on Israel that was, was committed by the Hamas militants on the October the 7th. Although, as you said, I have grave doubts about how that could possibly have happened through the most secure barrier in the world. But none of that, none of that justifies what is being done, um, what is being committed, the crimes that are being committed in Gaza for the last two months and which are ongoing. And I think <clears throat> when the UN secretary um, earlier on in this, it's not really a conflict, it's a massacre because there is very, very little, you know, this is not a battle between two states. Hmm. This is a conflict between a state and people who are completely and utterly in its power or almost entirely in its power. But he said, you know, um, that this can't be condemned, you know, the Hamas attack can't be uh, condemned unequivocally. And the Israeli unity, uh, you know, this emergency government came back and kind of condemned him from this and said, you know, you must condemn this without reservation. That is ludicrous. Anyone who watches international affairs, as I guess you and I do, or has any perception of what has been going on in Palestine for the last 75 years, and particularly the transformation of the Gaza Strip into uh, not an open-air prison, but to into a concentration camp yeah. in which the Israel, Israeli government has complete control over what goes in and what goes out. Um, that is obviously context of what's happened there. So any condemnations that we're asked to make or being demanded that we make always have to meet within context. And that's that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, because the discourse, the, the, the public conversation about this has been reduced very quickly to a series of shrill, uh, demands that we demand that we condemn this or that we support this and whatever and that is really not the way we should be supporting what is the most probably the most complex political um space in the entire world everything that happens in israel and palestine reverberates around the world which is what we're seeing now simon the term genocide just i mean i, I could easily go and look it up but okay um when it's used like it is it's you you imagine those uh you know rwanda um, what happened in Germany, all those things where so many people are killed. Uh, okay, you, you could argue the figures here compared to those um, events. It's small, but does genocide also mean moving people out, like getting rid of them, like disappearing yeah. them from where they are? The Yeah, the popular sort of perception of genocide is something like what happened in the Second World War and in the years leading up to it, an attempt to annihilate an entire people. That's not what it means. That's not what it means legally. The United Nations definition of genocide, uh, which was formed in 1948 in response to the attempted genocide or the genocide of the Jewish people in Europe during the Second World War, it includes killing members of a group which is defined as such. And that group could be defined um, nationally, racially, or religiously. So they're being killed because they belong to a particular group. Right. Um, but it can also be causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group as such. And if you look at the kind of the faces of those children in Gaza who seem to be already in shock because the whole building has collapsed on them, they're deliberately inflicting on a group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. What a lot of people don't know is that um, Israel allows into um, the Gaza Strip only such um, calories as, as is required to keep the population, which is 2.375 million people, just above the UN definition of hunger. Um, it also includes imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And what we've seen, perhaps most horrendously of all, is that by cutting power 
and medical um, uh, treatment and so on to Gaza. You've seen, we've seen those sort of photographs of children who've had to be kind of, you know, newborn children who've been having to be abandoned and, and die. These kind of these horrible things. The other thing about the crime of genocide, and remember, this is something, this is the convention <clears throat> on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. And signatories to this include um, the UK, the USA, you know, most Western countries, um, Germany and so on. Um, it also um, obligates the signatories to punish those who commit it. Now, okay. those yeah. who are punishable by it, you don't have to be only those who commit it. So no, in this case, not only the IDF or the people who've ordered them, the government. It also includes conspiracy to commit suicide. It includes direct, direct and public incitement to commit suicide, which I say would include an enormous number of Western commentators. That, that's commentators. genocide. You said suicide. You mean genocide, don't you? Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. no, that's right. Direct Carry and public on. incitement to commit genocide or an attempt to it, or a complicity in it. I would say any nation which is sending um, military support to Israel while the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, are committing this, are complicit in the act of genocide as well. And perhaps the last thing I'll say is the <clears throat> the people who can be punished, who should be, who are required, these nations are required to punish for this, are not, it's not um, heads of states, political figures, private individuals, leaders of public institutions they are all subject to this to this uh, to prosecution under these terms so it seems to me that the, the, the lot of the western nations who are complicit in this will have to undertake if they're going to honor this convention um uh, some sort of political process such as was done after the second world war to at least bring charges against not only the people in israel who are committing this but the people who are supporting it as well whether that happens or not huh, that's another question well, the United States are obviously supporting them. I want to see if I can play a clip just down the line to you just quickly. It's Lindsey Graham on television in the US in the last day or so talking about the um, Palestinian civilian casualties. Too many Palestinian civilians have been killed. Do you agree with that? Well, tell us how to do it differently. Yeah, I, what it, you know, what is too many people dying in World War II after Pearl Harbor? Did did the American public worry about how many people were dying to destroy Tokyo and Berlin? I know this is not the same, but it's similar. So he's saying basically, oh well, <laughs> you know, how else do you do it? It's just blowing it off, brushing it off like it's nothing. Yet he is one of the most uh, vocal supporters and he's you know in the political establishment mm. sending the billions to israel he's also a lawyer as well i think as well yeah isn't he? Uh, yeah just, just as the just as the vice president of the usa is as well i mean these these kind of analogies you know ever since the <clears throat> the state of israel was was carved out of the the british mandate for palestine in well, it, was, it was ratified in 1947 but it happened in 48 during the nakba the catastrophe that's that those crimes in which oh, i haven't got the figures at my fingertip but many many thousands of palestinians were killed in massacres across it, and you know the villages were repossessed i think something like 70 percent of palestine was taken into the possession of the state of israel um that crime has been justified by reference to the second world war and of course specifically to what we in the west inaccurately call the holocaust i mean i mean accurately because that's a kind of a christian term it kind of takes it into a sort of a sacrifice that somehow yeah. the the, the the Jews were, were were you know were killed and somehow the Palestinians have to expiate our crime that we committed if you like in Europe 
Yeah, sort um, of like transferred it, to them to, for, you know, to self-flagellate yeah, yeah. and, and uh, over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we and we've spent seventy-five years supporting that that kind of you know that expiation. Um, I'm always very wary when they do that. This situation is very very different to that. But you know, the, you know, as 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 Russia, as Vladimir Putin uh, recently reminded us, you know, there was only one country in the world that has ever used nuclear weapons against. Um, against another country and they used it against a civilian population that is the usa um i think the better analogy would be something like the bombing of dresden during the second world war yeah. which was afterward declared in by many you know many organizations as a as a crime as a war crime um simply putting this in the context of the second world war is a generalized comment which doesn't do any any justice to what's going on here as i said before when when um what was it 2005 when israel withdrew from the gaza strip uh, that is, it withdrew its its um, settlements there, um, and they began to build. Well, they'd started it before, but they began to really build this enormous fence around it, which goes out into the sea. They declared that Palestine was a de facto independent state, but as I've just said, they have complete control over its air, over its waters, over its land gates, over what goes in there. Um, you can't declare war on a polity which was in your control. A lot of lawyers have talked about that recently and said, you know, this is not what they're doing. So they're not waging war against a foreign state or a hostile state. They are committing genocide against people who are trapped within um, their control itself. Okay, so that all exists. They know that. Um, you'd have to be incredibly sure that the outcome you're going to get from this, I'm speaking about the Israelis, is going to mm. be what you're sure you're going to get. Otherwise... You know, it's a can of worms. Anything could happen. How how can we understand that thinking? Do you think it is a difficult one? Um, the the unity government that Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, has called is made up of the government he had beforehand was already you know described as the most right wing and religiously, um, if you like, fundamentalist in Israel's history, which is saying something. But this new unity government, the they've convened a war cabinet, which is made up of three men, all of whom have been in the special forces, including Benjamin Netanyahu. So they're they're soldiers, they're people who have probably done terrible things in their times, um, and they've all um, used a rhetoric since then, since this, which is quite open. You know, your what's his name? Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, has said very clearly, "We're going to wipe this thing called Gaza off the face of the earth." That itself is a war crime to actually say that. Um, they seem to be very open about this. I think, you know, Israel, The there are about 15 million Jews in the world or 15 million people who identify as Jews. And about half of them are in Israel and about half of them in the US. And there's, everyone knows there's a very strong symbiotic relationship between the two. I think one of the most interesting and scary developments that's happened, which may explain, you know, your quote, you know, be an answer to your question, why, how on earth do they think they're going to get away with this? is that the House of Representatives in the U.S. passed a motion, uh, didn't pass a motion, proposed a motion to equate um, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And since anti-Semitism around almost all Western countries is regarded as a hate crime and punishable by law, following on from the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, definition of anti-Semitism, um, this has been coming for a very long time. That means that any criticism of any of the acts of the government of Israel is now considered a hate crime. This is obviously a completely uh, legally, I don't know, unsupportable motion, but 
I mean, how many of the laws that have been made over the last four years <laughs> have been completely legally exactly? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it's actually trying to put a legal ring which will be enforceable by the US or by Israel itself. It's got a very, very powerful military. I think this year it was voted the fourth most, not the largest, the most effective military in the world. Um, so I think on the one hand, the people running the show are extremely dangerous people. Um, I think they've got a kind of, um, well, they've got a Zionist view of history. Um, they do want, uh, they do see Israel as being defined by its its, its kind of biblical bar- uh, uh, limits which runs more than from the river to the sea. You know, at the moment, one of the other things they're trying to do, this House of Representatives thing, and it's the same thing over here in the UK, is to make that chant, which is seen as a Palestinian chant, from the river to the sea, meaning from the Jordan River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea as being the land of Palestine. That, of course, was actually the, uh, the one of the founding premises of the Likud party, which okay. is Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Yes. And you can find it online in, I think it's around about 1977. Um, they're trying to outlaw that as well and make it a, a case. That's actually, a, that's really a chant by people who are, um, uh, um, people who have been colonized by an aggressive power and yeah. want to decolonize their land. That again is being made um, illegal. I think in the bigger context of things like the Great Reset, what we're seeing here is a whole lot of incredibly uh, oppressive and irrational and illegal, I would say, legislation being made into law, which is a further oppression of um, our ability or even our right to state that we want to fight back against might. Yeah. And, you know, that well, the relationship between the Palestinians, both in the occupied territories, so the West Bank, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and the rest of Israel, is a kind of microcosm of the rest of the world, this relationship between, I wouldn't say countries anymore, because this really isn't a national war that's going on. It's between the governments, well, it's not even the governments, it's between the global elite who sit on the boards of these transnational powers, like the UN, like NATO, and the people they're trying to govern. So in that sense, I think what's going on now very much like what's happened, what, what's almost it hasn't, it hasn't quite ended yet, has it? But what's going on and what's happened over the Ukraine in the last two years? Yeah, that's is a kind like of it's, it's kind of a vision. What's going on in our close like, to uh, running down by the looks of things, and um, it's running down. But then you know, Black Roth are now running the country, the country, aren't they? I think Mrs. Yeah. Zelensky is trying to work out where they can move to next and soon. <laughs> um, it's interesting. You're, you're, it talk, in you're talking yeah, about sorry. the histories of the, um, well, particularly of Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and it rang a bell, and I just checked. Of course, it was his younger brother, Yoni, who led the um, (laughs) rescue mission into Antebi, Uganda, the Air France Airbus that was hijacked and ended up there. So he's obviously perceived as a national hero still. And, um, of course, he was in the Special Forces, and so was Benjamin Netanyahu. So you can imagine how they see an operation like this, right? Like... uh, um, yeah, that, that whole war cabinet was in the special forces, and they're heroic. They're doing a heroic thing, and okay, it's tough, but hard men have got to do hard things, right? Yeah, and the two other members were both have both been accused of having committed war crimes during their 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 their, oh. their time in the special forces as well. Indeed. the the re, the, re, the reference to Benjamin Netanyahu's brother is an interesting one because you're right. Uh, his, his nickname was Yonigan. He was the hero of Entebbe. You know, they made a film about it. Yep. There was a book written about it by uh, an English journalist called Max Hastings, who went on to be kind of a senior um, sort of journalist in this country. And he wrote something re- recently about it, that he wrote the book, and he was trying to write the book about what, you know, the complexity of the situation in Palestine. 
but that the Netanyahu family kind of took the book out of his possession and turned it into this, I don't know if you've read it, I read it when I was quite young and it had a big effect on me, this right. kind of heroic figure who was fighting a back against the kind of the dark hordes. And it was a very influential book. It had a big impact on me. It took me a long time to kind of see through this very one-sided kind of uh, image of, 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 of this relationship between Israel and Palestine. You know, again and again, we're told, <clears throat> and it's come back, you know, with a vengeance now, that Israel is sort of this uh, this outpost of Western liberalism, human rights, LBGT rights, and all this sort of stuff. You know, recently we had that soldier holding up a, a kind of a LGBT flag on the ruins of Gaza, as if, as if this was some sort of, you know, excuse for the horror that they've inflicted on it. You know, one of my friends called this, what is it, rainbow washing or something. But this image of Israel as a as a kind of a bastion, as this out, outpost of of, uh, of Western values in the dark, you know, creeping caliphate of, of Islam, it's completely and utterly inaccurate. It's about as inaccurate as describing Ukraine as a bastion of, you know, <clears throat> of liberal democracy against the, the threat of Russia. Yeah. You know, these are complete, you know, Israel is a, I don't think it's even fair to call it a police state. Um, you know, um, I think one of the people we should name check here are the Israelis, the Jewish Israelis in Israel, who have the courage to stand up and protest against... We don't hear much. We don't, we don't hear much about them. We've had the odd email and the odd text, you know, uh, alerting us to um, um, that sort of activity. But I've not seen any of it reported. And I, this is the next thing I want to get onto because, you know, um, last conversation we had, we're talking about the Great Reset and a lot of people have woken up to that and they're looking for the signs and the the kind of joining up dots. But then something like this comes along and those very same people, you know, they, they sort of fracture <coughs> and fragment, the group fra fractures and fragments down the obvious lines. <coughs> and, and you know, some of us are thinking, have you not learned anything? Yeah, I... Um, I published the book that you were nice enough to ask me to talk about, um, I think within about three days of this starting. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> I know there's going to be a sort of another chapter on this if I do a second edition. But since then, I've, I've written a fairly long article called 10 Questions About Gaza. And they're 10 questions that uh, nobody, no, no mainstream journalist and no politician is asking. And they're certainly not answering at all. And one of those questions is exactly what you brought up, whatever happened to the freedom movement. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did a book launch um, this weekend, and usually I have a kind of a packed room and where I did it, and it, it, the room was about half full, and that's exactly what's kind of happened to the freedom movement. The conservative elements of it, if you want to call it the right wing, whatever, if you, some sort of description of these people, I guess they've seen that I've been sort of standing up against the, you know, making statements about what I believe is happening in Gaza and my, my disapproval of it, to put it mildly. And they didn't turn up. It's managed to completely divide that burgeoning resistance to the Great Reset in two. Um, I find that very upsetting, kind of inexplicable. One of the things I've tried to do in my article is to try and understand that, um, how intelligent people who've spent the last four years not only resisting but risking their own careers their reputation perhaps even their liberty to fight against this creeping overreach of the state against our freedom of speech freedom of conscience our freedom of protest and also <clears throat> who have spent four years telling us not to believe anything that our media and government has told us now mm. have turned around have told us that everything that the media and government is telling us is gospel that anyone who goes onto the street and protests against this should be beaten up by the police, that the law should be given new powers to prevent us um, making statements like Palestine should be free, and basically beh behaving in every way as they were treated 
by the government, the pharmaceutical industries, and all the other people who've been sort of waving the COVID, you know, sort of scam over us. And also, also exactly what they did um, with the Ukraine war as well, the proxy mm. war with Ukraine. Mm. So there's been this enormous, extraordinary flip round, isn't there? And I guess it goes to show, you know, <laughs> what does it show? I guess it shows that if you trigger intelligent people, you find their buttons and you press them, they can behave just as stupidly, just as emotively, and also just as cruelly as the as most of the people behaved in the West under the first days of lockdown. But, but they forget. Therapy. They forget so readily. And I'm just wondering, you know, the elites that we talk about and the reset that we talked about uh, that is yeah. the subject of your book, it makes sense, doesn't it, to, to put up or create situations like this, which does fragment and otherwise waking up unified, powerful, global yeah. population because they're at each other again. And, and while they're at each other, no worries. You know, um, they're looking the other way. They're distracted. We carry on. Yeah. I don't – I'd hesitate to say that the – one of the key decisions, uh, key motivations in this war was to break up, you know, what's got this name, which I'm a little bit dubious about, but the freedom movement. But it's definitely been one of the effects of it. It's the distraction it's, effect, uh, I guess, yeah, in the, 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 the wider. One thing, one thing that's definitely sure is that as the, um, the coronavirus justified regulations under which we've been ruled and governed for two years, as they were revoked in March 22, we went directly into the proxy war in the Ukraine, which of course it did, it actually started in 2014, but that's when it became a kind of a big thing. And just as that's winding down and everyone's beginning to question whether Zelensky is actually the, the great hero of Western democracy or just some nasty the little- guy plays the piano with his dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, a guy plays piano. And, and more than that, who's kind of you know buying yachts and stuff like that with all the money. Just as that's happening, boom, this comes up as well. Um, it Are is, the two linked? Do they join up? Do they? Do they? Yes, I think I think I think they do. I think they do link because how do they link? They they link in lots of ways. I mean, in very simple ways. Um, well, it's not the simple one. I think the really overriding thing of this. I talked to you last time about the state that the Western economies are in, and throughout history, and particularly through modern history, wars have been used to get countries out of debt. Um, there is one thing and one thing only that got the West out of the Great Depression of the thirties. And that was the Second World War. Yeah, war, yeah. war makes money. It makes, you know, Netanyahu himself was facing enormous opposition to these new laws that he was bringing in, which was cracking down on freedom of speech and opposition to his uh, his labor laws and something like that. And boom, suddenly, you know, this war comes in. So it benefits people in all sorts of ways. War makes permanent, at least for that period of the wars being waged, which as we've seen can go on for years, what are emergency powers. And under those emergency powers, People naturally come together because they think, you know, we have to come together to fight this war. But it also gives the government extraordinary overreach and shutting down <clears throat> um, opposition to it. And on the back of that, passing in the sort of legislation that we're seeing in the US, which makes permanent this removal of our, uh, not just our speech, but our ability to oppose what the government wants to do. So as a continuation of what's happened under COVID or what happened under the proxy Ukraine war, there's a continuation there. I think there's bigger... I think there's bigger issues as well. You know, in the first days of this conflict, if we can call it that crisis, um, the US very quickly sent one of its aircraft carrier groups to the Eastern Mediterranean. What was it there for? I mean, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure the IDF have got quite enough, um, you know, equipment to kill the Gazans who were trapped in the, um, the concentration camp. But the they've now got two carrier. They had two carrier uh, strike groups there. 
And the the other one, SSS, sorry, USS Eisenhower, mm-hmm. went down through the Red Sea and has now gone into the the Gulf of Panama. Uh, no, sorry, is it the Gulf outside of Iran as well? You'd have to think the US has been picking or moves, is it, or, or, or whatever? Yeah, in that yeah. area. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> um, they've been picking a fight with Iran for a long time, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a conflict there started very soon. All they have to say is that. Some someone in Iran fired a rocket at one of our ships, and that would justify an invasion. It does look, you know, it's looked for a very long time that we're going into something like a third world war. Let's hope to God, whoever else is up there. But a third world war is not good for business, is it? Because it could end. Because I was just thinking as you're talking, if you go back to 9-11, probably before that, but 9-11, let's put the line in the sand there. There has been overlapping continuous conflicts all the way through and they've overlapped they've dovetailed one into the other and if you were to to keep the conveyor belt of military um uh uh, business and opportunities going you can't have it stopping and starting it's it's got to be does it matter where it is which would indicate then that you can never have too much of an intense high level conflict you can have kind of scraps right um can yeah, you, I think, can you really I th- see the I think, U.S. invading Iran and occupying it like Iraq? I, I can't, but um, but they can have ongoing scraps and skirmishes. The checkbook comes out, and and um, you know the the continuous cycle carries on. Yeah. I I don't know, Paul. I'm not enough of a I'm not enough of a watcher of the yeah. the kind of geopolitics yeah. of the world to say that. Um, but as a I business think, model, right? Yeah, I mean the the U.S. is the U.S. is one of its biggest. One of his biggest industries is is war, isn't it? Death and, and arms production. Is it as it is in the UK? You know, we don't really make much much of anything in the at the moment in the UK. <laughs> but we do make arms and we do a lot. Storm of, shadow of the, missiles. <laughs> yeah, we're one of the bigger Israel's biggest arms dealers. But <clears throat> I think the US is probably bargaining on the fact that after two years fighting this proxy war in the Ukraine, Russia may stay out of this. They've made warning signs, and I think they're going to test how far it goes. Uh, I think China are the real diplomats of the world. They don't need to get in wars. China is where the British Empire was all those years ago. They just they just make everything and buy it. They want the, the business. They got they, they want the business. And they're not going to get involved in war as much as they can. Um, I think the US needs war because that's all it's got. Is that's the kind of how its economy is running. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and the Middle East. I think the other thing is the BRICS company, the BRICS countries, Brazil, uh, Russia, India. Um, China and South Africa, they're on the verge of expanding enormously next year in 2024. They've got a huge number of new countries coming in, including countries like Saudi Arabia, which is a very, very wealthy country with a huge amount of oil. And I don't think the US wants to see that happening because that will really threaten the status of the US dollar as the reserve currency of the world. A war in the Middle East, or at least occupation in the Middle East, certainly what's going on now, with the kind of presence of it and the danger of that area, that's going to really destabilize that process. I think that's probably the more likely motivation, right. immediate motivation of why the US has got two um, as, you know, aircraft carrier strike groups in their area at the moment and why they're supporting and sending um, uh, weapons weapons to the IDF as it commits this, this, this genocide. Not to mention that the major players in American politics at the moment seem to have dual citizenship, <laughs> Israeli and <laughs> American. So, you know... <laughs> Whose side are they on? I mentioned that a lot. Okay, we've got freedom-loving people listening, and we know that there are different uh, views on 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 both sides and helicoptered above. What do you say to the folks listening right now? Um, if we are to 
well, I mean, they'll choose what they think in the end, but to, to you know, raise that point of, yeah, of, of don't be too tribal, right? Based on on what you're yeah. seeing yeah. And, and what's yeah. being reported to you, what, what would you yeah. say? Yeah. On I, that? I would say that whatever happens, if you want to understand how the world works, you have to understand what has been happening and what is happening in Israel. Everything that happens there reverberates around the world. It seems it's very strange. It's been going on for quite a few thousand years, actually, hasn't it? That that strange part of the world. Um, if you want to take a position on this, you need to find out why it's happening and what the justifications of it are. Please, please, please don't allow the your own opinion on this to be reduced to responding to the people who say to you in a shrill voice, do you condemn Hamas? Are you anti-Semitic? Um, what, how else were you meant to you know, destroy this evil organization? These are terms, these are questions, these are demands, which are specifically, they are strategic demands, which are made by, um, by governments, by militaries, by journalists, in order to reduce this public conversation to tribalism, as you said. Are you on the left or on your right? Are you pro or are you for? No conflict in the history of the world has been that simple, and this one, least of all. Um, please try and look into what the actual uh, reality of the situation is, what its geopolitical reality is. And also, I would say, because there's been an erosion of the the level of public conversation that's been about the way the state of the world and where it's going for a long time now, um, you know, this, this is repeating the same tropes that we have with COVID and we had in the Ukraine. Um, we need to reclaim that public space to have a real conversation about this. And the final thing I would say is, whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of this, I don't think any human being, I hope no human being, sentient human being, can justify the butchery that's being committed there. Whether you think it's being committed under the crime of genocide or as collateral damage in a war on Hamas, we cannot condone this because if we set a template for this, nobody, nobody uh, can be ever be excused of the crime of genocide and it will be committed again. And next time it will be against different people. So that's, I guess, what I'd say. The other thing is fatigue. Um, mm. starts to come in to you after a while, you know, the shocking images, but that that's the other terrible thing. It it, it yeah. diminishes yeah. over time really bad stuff. Yeah. I mean that's that's I try not to share I try not to share too many of these images because it has this it, it it inures you. You know, one of the terrible, terrible things that the state of Israel has done is it's made its people complicit in the ongoing crimes of occupation and the brutality of those crimes. And unfortunately, the people, the Jewish people who had the greatest crime perhaps in the history of the world committed against them, have now been inured, desensitized to the crimes that they're committing. And they're now talking about the Palestinians with exactly the same uh, lack of humanity that they were talked about and the way they were treated as well. And I think that's a terrible thing. So we have to be careful about that process of denuring. Can I just say one last thing? Um, I have written this big long article. It is these 10 questions. And I would I would urge people to to read it and to ask those questions of yep. their friends and other people when they get into a conversation about this. The first one is what is a Jew? That's a question about this idea that Israel is some sort of a Jewish homeland which was granted by God and why this is not a basis for understanding the the complexity of the politics there. The second one is what is Gaza, which looks at the history of Gaza and what it is today and why we can't talk of it as a separate state. The third one is how did Hamas escape, which a lot of people, uh, people who worked in the IDF and intelligence have voiced their, their disbelief about the kind of the narrative we're given about that.
Uh, the fourth one is what is a free Palestine? Um, we kind of talked about that, this idea of the river to the sea. Um, the fifth one is, sorry, let me get this. The sixth, sorry, the sixth one is what is collective punishment? So it looks at the legal terms about what that is and the history of collective punishment. The seventh one is, is Israel guilty of genocide? Um, it clearly is, and I'm looking at the legal framework for that. The number eight is what is the October Declaration? So this was this statement that was made by the British Friends of Israel, which has got a huge number of signatories. And I kind of go through it line by line and pull it apart because I think it's a disgraceful document. Um, the ninth one is whatever happened to the freedom movement, which is we, we kind of touched on briefly. And the last one is, <clears throat> which is kind of close to me because I'm a historian, is what can history teach us? Every time we get onto the edge of these things, the, the edge of these crises, people seem to forget the history of the world. And um, I look yeah. at some of what can history can teach us about this and hopefully pull us back from the brink. So those are the 10 questions I looked at. Okay, we'll look out for that link on the replay. But uh, uh, Simon Elmer, great to have you back. Really interesting to chat. And I'm sure it won't be the last. No, we're, we're on to you now. So <laughs> <laughs> Simon Elmer, author of the book. And we talked about that last time we chatted. But let's remind people of the title, The Great Reset Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capitalism. Thanks for coming back on. Interesting chat. And it, it all adds something to how people view what we're seeing. Okay, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me on here, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.